I feel confident that of all the amazing churches around this country, there wasn't another church in America that played theory of a dead man on a Sunday morning. I love that song. I don't know what was more impressive today that the band did that song or that Phil was able to edit that song to the point where we could do it. Because if you've never heard the original version of that song, it was not quite that clean. Man, I have loved this series. I'm actually shocked how much I've loved this series. It was, it was a new teaching for me. It was some new studying for me. It kind of re-energized me. And it was one of those series that, man, I was preaching to myself more than I was preaching to you. And so I tell people all the time, you get to come along on my journey. Because I feel like if it's something I'm struggling with, it's probably something you're struggling with. And the fact of the matter is I get in stages in life, about 99.9% of my life, I hate people. You're saying, well, that's not very pastoral. Let me rephrase that. I can't stand people. I get to the stage in my life where I despise people. I told someone the other day, I said, man, I'd have had the greatest job in the world if I didn't have to preach or deal with people, which is basically all I do. People will drive you insane. <laughs> and I started with several thoughts five weeks ago about hating people because nothing will change your demeanor like when your mind flips to the point that you hate people. Because there's nothing you can do in life without being around people. And it begins to affect our outlook on life. And so I gave you a couple of points that we've reiterated throughout the series. And the first one is this. At the end of the day, you don't hate people. You hate certain people's actions. You don't hate people. You hate certain people's actions. And we allow certain people's actions to cause us to swipe in broad statements that we hate people. The second was this, and this was the hardest one for me. To hate people goes against the entire message of the Bible. So when we get frustrated and when we get irritated and when we get discouraged and we make the broad statement, God, I hate people. There's really nothing you can say or do that is more contrary to the Word of God. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And then Jesus comes back and says the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. We're commanded to love God. We're commanded to love people. Matter of fact, people ask me all the time. We had someone new that was thinking about visiting our church, and they sent me a message. And they said, hey, would you be interested in sharing your core values with me? That's a big thing. Church have core values. I said, we don't have any core values. They said, what? I said, we have three things that we do. We love God, we love people, and we live out our name. We take action. That's what we do. It's really that simple. We're not, I'm not smart enough to make it any more complicated than that. So we're to love God, we're to love people, yet we live our life saying we hate people. So how can you live out the message of Christ when you hate people? And so the third principle that we've learned is very simply this. You must learn how to deal with certain types of people. Because remember, we don't hate people. We hate the actions of certain people. So I really told you this could be a 52-week series. I could take a different type of person every week, 
if we could talk about how we deal with those people. But instead, we've taken a few and we've learned how to deal with those. The first week, we talked about how do you deal with controlling people. The people who try to control every single thing you do. They try to manipulate you. They try to control you. They try to get you to do what they want you to do. And we all have those type people. Many of you are married to her. Oh, excuse me, him. I mean, married. I mean, many of you work with people like that is what I meant to say. We talked about how you deal with critical people. And I told you, it's funny. I preached on criticism a lot over the years. But I've never preached on how you actually deal with critical people. We talked about how you deal with hypocritical people. And the church is full of hypocrites. Oh, by the way, life is full of hypocrites. I just don't go to church because of the hypocrites. Oh, but you go to work because of the hypocrites. And you go to the family reunion with the hypocrites. And you go to the ball field with the hypocrites. Jerry, I don't care if it's your birthday. Don't be disrupting the service back there. Like, Jerry acts like me and him are the only ones here every Sunday morning. Like, we're just going to talk and have a conversation. He acts like it's his own dance floor during worship, dancing Jerry, and he talks the whole service. Welcome to Hatching Church, where we will call you out in two seconds. Then we talked about how you deal with needy people, because, man, they'll suck the life out of you. We call needy people emotional vampires. They just, they suck the life out of you. And today... We're going to talk about that person as we wrap up this series who's the easiest person to hate. I feel confident that no church played Theory of a Dead Man. I told you that. And I feel confident that there's probably not another church around that's going to quote Michael Jackson. But today we're going to look at the man in the mirror. Because at the end of the day, as much as we despise other people, and as much as we allow the actions of other people to affect us, If we were to be honest, the person that most of us hate more than any person is ourselves. We're the most critical on ourselves. We're the most needy on ourselves. We're the most controlling on ourselves. We're the most hypocritical on ourselves. We are our biggest critic. We never live up to our standards And in the process, it causes us to hate people like never before. There's nobody that we hate more than ourselves. We are just self-loathing people. Even the people that we think are the most confident people are self-loathing people. Even those that we would actually call narcissists because we say that everything in their life is about them, those people hate themselves more than anybody. That's why narcissism reigns in their life. I have people come up to me all the time, they're like, I wish I had the confidence you have in this, and I'm always like, I'm the most self-loathing person you've ever met in your life. I'm the most critical person you've ever met in your life. I'm critical of, of my appearance, and I'm, I, I'm critical of, of how I am as a dad, and I'm critical of how I am as a husband, and it's so easy to beat myself up. And the problem is, if I allow myself to get into that state too deep, that's when I implode. And I am Gary Lamb, the king of implosions. My wife, I think, is probably the most amazing woman in the world. I mean, she's a total package. She's smoking hot. Hashtag smoking hot pastor's wife. 
She's sharp. She's smart. She's a great mom. She's a great wife. Man, she's physically fit. She has people that she trains how to be physically fit. As you can tell, she doesn't train me. Self-loathing, see? And she's probably the most self-loathing person I've ever met in my life. She told me I could say that because it's the truth. She battles it nonstop, self-loathing. See, we think these people have it all together, and it's so easy to be so critical on yourself. And and self-hatred is one of those things that I believe like actually everybody deals with it. We all just deal with it in different areas. There's areas of my life that I'm very confident in. And then there's areas in my life where I feel like the biggest failure. The problem is it's the areas that I feel like the biggest failure in, they consume the areas that I'm very confident in, and I focus on those areas. Here's the problem, and I've never had this thought before. You ever, it, to me, this is amazing. What is amazing about the Bible? I, I'm pretty good about reading my Bible. goes along with the whole gig of being a pastor. I'm pretty good about studying my Bible. been doing it now for 21 years. I have probably preached at a minimum, at a minimum, 52 times a year. Even if I miss a Sunday, I've preached at other places for 21 years. I used to preach in a church, the very first church I ever pastored. We did Sunday morning service, Sunday night service, and Wednesday service. At the last church I pastored, we did sometimes four Sunday morning services to hold everybody. So I've preached a lot of sermons. And I love those moments when I read Scripture, especially Scripture that I read all the time. And I see something I've never seen before. And you almost feel stupid that you've never seen it. You're like, how did I miss that? I'm fixing to share a verse with you, and here's the deal with this verse. Hands down, single-handedly, there is not a verse I have used more in my preaching than this verse. I've already quoted the verse today. I've used it every week of this series. And, of course, we know the verse that's in Mark chapter 12. The Bible says this, Love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and all your strength. Then Jesus said the second great commandment is this, Love your neighbors as yourself. There's no greater commandment than these. Love your neighbor as yourself. And I've got up for so many years and said, this is a verse that we don't live out. We don't love people like we should live out. Leave that up, please, Xander. And this week as I'm reading it, I came to this realization, we 100% live this verse out. It's easy to say we don't love people. But we do love people. We love people with the same love that we love ourselves with, and the large majority of us can't stand ourselves, so therefore we can't stand people. Hello. All the years I've read that verse, I've never had that thought before. We do love people. So guess what? The good news is this. We're being biblical. We're loving our neighbors with the same love that we have for ourselves. The problem comes and the sin comes. The Bible says for him to know do it good and do it not, it is sin. We can't stand ourselves. And how can we love others when we don't love the person we look at in the mirror? How you love your neighbor is really just a reflection of how you love yourself. So I can't help but wonder, as I feel like we live in a day and time, and let me make this very clear, I don't feel like we have any more of a hate-filled world than we've ever had. 
I feel like we've always had a hate-filled world. We just have more access to letting everyone know how much we hate everything nowadays. You know, every Tom, Dick, and Harry has Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat and a blog and an email and a cell phone. And and so nowadays, we just have more avenues to allow our hate to spew. (laughs) See, the problem is, we think everyone else is a bad parent because deep down inside, we think we're bad parents. Someone's told us that, and we believe it. We get so angry at other people's failures because we despise our own failures. We don't know how to punish our, We do punish ourselves, but we don't know how to consciously punish ourselves, so we punish other people. We're so judgmental about others because it makes us feel just a smidge better about ourselves temporarily. It's like an emotional fix real quick. I mean, I don't like the way I do this, but at least I don't do it like they do. We love our neighbor with about as much love as we love ourselves. People never meet your expectations because you don't meet your expectations. I told you this last week. Normally the thing that we're critical the most about in others is the thing we're most insecure about in our own life. I've shared with you that. I'm really bad about it. I'm probably very insecure about physical stuff in my life. Like I am definitely not where I want to be physically. And so what I'll do is I'll see someone who's shaped. I'm like, man, they're in shape. (laughs) Yeah, but you know what they do. I don't have time to make the gym my God and be there four hours a day. Even though I see them when they're not there for four hours a day, I see them when they get there and see them when they leave. You know, well, I mean, I'd look like that too if I was using all the stuff they were using. I'm I'm not going to spend $200 a month in supplements. Now, I'll spend $200 a month at Taco Bell. (laughs) You know, but I ain't going to spend two. I'm just not going to do it. Even caught myself yesterday doing it. Some guy I don't even, I don't even know. But we're friends on Facebook, apparently. Posted, he said, my stuff just came in. And this dude had like 11 things. He had protein and this and this and this. And bam, bam, bam. I don't even know the guy. And I commented before I realized what happened. If you need that much stuff to work out, man, you must really be in bad shape. Why would I comment that? And the minute I posted I knew it was wrong, I wasn't deleting it. So I go what anybody does, and I Facebook stalked him. Don't act like you don't know about Facebook stalking. I was like, what is this dude's story anyway, skinny mother? I didn't say it. You ain't got to gasp. I come to realize this dude's lost 180-something pounds. So now I really hate him. This is how bad it made me feel. I get off my phone. I need to take a break. I didn't really need to take a break. I just didn't want to erase the comment. So then I'm driving to a wedding yesterday. Driving to a wedding. It's been like three hours later, and I'm still feeling guilt about this comment. So I sent. Now, I don't go delete the comment. 
Because now everybody's telling me what a creep I am, and that's just firing me up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At least I'm natural. <laughs> you know. Can't, can't button my shirt. I'm choking with the tie I got on because I'm going to a wedding. I'm natural. Finally, I send the dude to private. I said, hey, man, that really came out wrong. It didn't come out wrong. It came out just like I meant it. Like, I can't even, I'm so prideful, I can't even really apologize to the guy. I said, you can't hear tone in a message. And then that jerk was so nice. Oh, man, I didn't take it that way at all. Man, it's a lot, but, man, I just decided, man, I love my kids enough, and I, I couldn't even go play on the trampoline with them. And I was like, So I don't respond. But, you know, that's the problem with Facebook. It says red. It ain't like a text message. You can turn that feature off on your text. You're always like, did they get my text? Oh, I didn't get it, man. I'm sorry. This said red. About 30 minutes later, I pull over because you don't text and drive. (laughs) I said, hey, I got to be honest. I really was trying to be a jerk, man. I was wrong. Man, I can't believe how much weight you've lost. Man, that's so incredible. Blah, blah, blah. And and I cleared the air with him. But it took me five hours to get to that point because we're critical about what we're most insecure about. You know what I mean? We hate certain aspects of our life. So then even after I did that, I'm driving down the road thinking about my message, and I'm thinking, you know, at least I was biblical. I treated him the same way I treat myself. And I felt like God clears the day was like, man, you ought to treat yourself better. So I just turned up the radio where I don't got to hear God. And I rode on to the wedding. It's just how we do things, isn't it? I wish there was a happy ending where I could tell you I repented and got it right, but I didn't. (laughs) We can't stand ourselves. People are never good enough. Because at the end of the day, we're not good enough in our own minds. We hate ourselves. And therefore, it's impossible to love others the way we're supposed to love others. And I can give you all the tips you need on how to be critical, how to deal with critical people, how to deal with needy people, how to deal with controlling people, how to deal with hypocritical people, whatever it is you want. But at the end of the day, until you learn to love yourself, you're never going to be able to love others because we're to love others as we love ourselves. Now listen, make no mistake about it because someone's going to message me and it probably is not going to be this group but it's going to be someone who listens to the podcast and they're going to tell me all the verses in the Bible that talk about pride and ego and self-loving and I understand that. You can take anything to an extreme. I'm not talking about narcissism. We all know narcissistic people who, who love themselves more than they love anything else. That's not what I'm talking about. The Bible condemns that kind of behavior. I'm talking about the type of love where you have respect for yourself. You have a proudness about what you've accomplished. I'm talking about the type of love for yourself where you can look yourself in the mirror and know you're doing your best, even if it's not the results you want to see, and you can be comfortable in your own skin. See, sometimes we set a standard that's unrealistic. There's steps of time we have to step back and think to ourselves, you know what I know that I'm doing what I'm supposed to do? And this is just the way it happens. No matter how hard I try, no matter how much work I put in, I'm never going to look like the rock. I'm not a Samoan. 
I don't have a Samoan mom and a black dad or whichever combination he has. I don't have a personal trainer. I don't have a personal chef. And at the end of the day, I'm not built like him, and I'm just not going to look like that. So I can set that as my standard. It's just not going to happen. Now, the other side of that is the rock's never going to look like me. He's probably thankful for that. Sometimes you've got to know you're doing your best. Let me give you an example. Our daughter, Emily, had a game board she had to make for school. And it's weird because Emily's an A and B student without even trying. She's that kid that irritates you. She doesn't even try and she gets A's and B's. And to be honest with you, I've really never seen Emily do much homework. She does it while she watches TV, which flies all over me, but she gets good grace, so you really can't argue with it. And about a month ago, though, I saw her in the living room with the door shut, working on a project for school. I'm talking about legit working on a project for school. They had to design a game, game board. For two days, I watched her work on this game board. I watched her tell a friend she could not come spend the night because she, and I was like, look at that girl. She is kicking it in a whole nother level. She's about to get 100. She creates this game. I ain't saying this because she's my kid. The game was amazing. She takes the game to school. The teacher looks at her and said, I ought to fail you for this game, but I'm going to give you a 70 instead where at least you pass. She comes home. She's never had a 70 in her life. She's tore up from the floor up. She turns the game in a day early than when it's due. So our logic is it's not due to tomorrow. Redo the game. She goes and makes all the changes from the teacher told her, returns it on the desk, and she says, you've already turned this in. That 70 brought her grade down to the first time in her life. She got her report card this week. It was a C. Now here's the deal. She was tore up about it. I think she was a little bit nervous about what we were going to do about it. We didn't do anything about it. She put in the work. We saw her put in the work. We saw her give her best. Matter of fact, I've never seen her work, so I told her, say, quit working hard at stuff. You don't do good when you work hard at it. Just go with it natural. <laughs> or do what every other kid in that grade doesn't have your parents do it for you. Oh, I didn't say that, did I? I didn't say that, did I? My point being is she had given her best. There was nothing for her to be disappointed. That's all you can ask of her. We've got to get to the point in our life where we know at the end of the day we've done the best that we can do, and we've got to start seeing ourselves the way God sees us. You're never going to love people till you love yourself. And, and there's so many reasons, I think, why we hate ourselves. I could list a hundred of them, but reasons we hate ourselves, I wrote down a few, is, is we love to play the comparison game. We love to play the comparison game. And I, and I think, again, social media has escalated this. Because I get to see your fake life on Facebook now, and I compare my real life with your fake life, and I wonder why it doesn't line up. And we play the comparison game. Well, I, I thought I was doing really good until I saw this person that I don't even know that's four states away that I don't even know how we became friends on Facebook. But, I mean, look how good they're doing. We play the comparison game. And this isn't anything new. In the Old Testament, there was a guy named Saul. Saul was the first king of Israel. Saul was a bad dude, man. And he was so bad that they wrote songs about him. And they said, Saul has slayed his thousands. He was a magnificent warrior. But the second verse of that song, there was a little shepherd boy named David, and they would say, Saul has slayed his thousands. And David has slayed his ten thousands. Saul heard that, and the comparison game kicked in. 
And here's what you need to understand about Saul. Saul was chosen to be king. God allowed the children of Israel to select him. He wasn't God's choice. And the children of Israel selected him because he was the stuff. He had the look. You know what I'm talking about? You just meet that guy and he has the look. He had the look. Like he walked into a room, he was taller than everyone and more muscular than everyone, and he had all the things. So if there was anybody that should have been confident in their ability, it should have been Saul. But he heard the children chanting, the children of Israel singing and chanting, David has slayed his 10,000, and it began to drive Saul literally mad. And he came unraveled. He came unglued. He began to hate himself. And in the end, it, it led to his destruction. Why? Because he played the comparison game. How many of you play the comparison game? We see somebody, and again, this isn't me crapping on other people. It's just the reality. We look at our favorite celebrity and we think, man, if I could just be more like them, and we don't realize that they have a dietitian who plans out every meal for them. And they have a chef, and that's, they've earned that right, man. That's awesome to their success. They have a chef who cooks every meal. And if you're Tim McGraw, man, you had a 53-foot trailer that transforms like a transformer into a CrossFit gym, and you get up every day, and the guy pulls you to the gym, and he walks you through the steps because you're a pimp like that. And I don't have that. I have the YMCA. <laughs> where every time I try to lift weights, there's this guy there that tries to tell me how I'm doing it wrong. And if you know anything about me, he's my wife's friend, so I try to be nice. So instead of getting mad, I just leave. Because I don't want to embarrass my wife and cuss him out because that's what I want to do. And you're like, well, why can't you tell him nicely to not do that? Because I just don't work. I, I can't. <laughs> like, I've tried. I've tried it in my head. In my head, I've been like, hey, buddy. <laughs> like, I appreciate that you're so in shape. And, man, that's amazing. And you think I'm doing it wrong. I, I, I don't really want to hear it every single solitary freaking time that I touch a weight. I get that I don't like you, but I'm not that stupid. Now, if you see me doing something that's going to hurt me, step in, man, I know. But every time I just want, but I don't. So I just put on my jacket and I leave. And as you can tell, that's what happens when you get a body like this. You just leave. The comparison game. Always kills me. Ladies have four or five kids and they compare themselves to a 20-year-old who's never had any kids. You know what I mean? Of course they look like that. We love that comparison game. I always share this story. I had a church planner, a guy who started a church, come to me. It's about five or six years ago. And he had a very sick, so he was running about six or 700 people. That puts him in the top 3% of churches in America. And he calls me and said, man, I'm looking for a job. I said, man, what happened? He said, I'm shutting the church down. I said, you're shutting the church down? What are you talking about? You got 600 people coming every Sunday. Man, you're a success story. He said, man, we're not doing anything. I said, what, what do you mean you're not doing anything? He said, man, across town, such and such church has 5,000 people every week. I said, who cares? I, he, I just can't live with it. We're not doing anything. I said, you're probably the second biggest church in the county next to such and such church with 5,000 people. But he got caught up in that comparison game. I think we as preachers, were, it's one thing. I, there's a lot of things I have victory over numbers is one of them. I don't really care. But I think so many preachers, we, we, we get caught up in these things that God never worries about. I don't think God's worried about how many people are in church, other than the fact that no, people represent numbers and numbers represent people and people are souls, and I get all that. We put all these man-made standards on ourselves. It's my, it's my issue with the kind of the self-help movement nowadays. I love the self-help movement. I love to listen to that kind of stuff. But they equate happiness with how many cars you have and how many this and how many that. Listen, listen, happiness is just, man, 
you being fulfilled and being able to do what you want in your life. Now, for you, it might be a certain kind of car. That's cool. For someone else, it might be just more time with their family. One of the guys I love and everybody rails, it's weird because he's one of the leading guys in preaching that happiness is just whatever you fulfillment in your life. He said, man, you might make $50,000 a year. might be your goal. Get out there and get your hustle and make that $50,000. His goal is to buy the New York Jets. And so he makes no bones. He goes, I have to work these hours. He goes, I will own the New York Jets one day. And he said, to have the New York Jets, I've got to have this many billion dollars in the bank. He goes, that's my goal. That's not my goal. I don't really care about owning the New York Jets. I just about to be able to make the house payment. You know? The comparison game. I can't compare myself to him. And, and then there's, there's guilt. There's guilt. We're just a guilt-ridden society. We love to beat ourselves up. We love to crap on ourselves. We screw up. Hey, let me give you a newsflash. You're going to screw up. You're going to mess up. Let me give you another newsflash. You're going to screw up royally. You're going to mess up in ways you never imagined you would mess up. There's only been one perfect who, one person who ever lived their life and lived their life perfect. And you ain't him. But the problem is we screw up and then we allow guilt to consume us. We allow it to overwhelm us. And listen, when we screw up, there ought to be a repentance stage in that. I understand it. But we allow the guilt of that screw up to last forever. Satan loves to remind you of your past. Sounds so cliche and so bumper sticker-esque, but he just don't like to be reminded of his future. Then there's that pursuit of perfection is another reason for trying to obtain something that's unattainable. And you're going to let yourself down every time. And then we hate ourselves because we demand perfection out of ourselves. Or there's rejection. So much of the things we hate about us is because somebody rejected us in that area at some stage in our life. They rejected you as a parent. They rejected you as a boyfriend. They rejected you as a girlfriend. You got rejected at work, whatever it is. And because you got rejected one time, we forget all about all the other times we won, for lack of a better word, and we focus on the one-time rejection. I get it. People can leave this service, and everyone can shake my hand and tell me they enjoyed the sermon, and one person can tell me they didn't, and I think about that person who rejected me instead of the hundreds of people who said they loved it. It's just human nature. And then we begin to hate ourselves. I can put a festival on that has 10,000 people and one person will go leave a comment on our Facebook page about how they didn't like it. And I'll focus on that one person nonstop instead of all the other 9,999 people who seem to have a great time and didn't complain. We focus on rejection. So there's reasons we hate ourselves. The comparison game, the guilt game, the pursuit of perfection, rejection. We could go on and on and on. The bottom line is we hate ourselves and we've got to have a mindset change. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you, there's nothing that's any harder than this. I'm going to go ahead and tell you today that if there's ever a sermon where you were snapping pictures of the screens, this ought to be it. Because you will not flip a switch in one day and overcome this. There's a verse in the New Testament, and Paul's talking, and Paul, he says, he says, he said, I die daily. And they, he never says what he dies daily to. It's a struggle in his life. And theologians believe God didn't allow him to say what the specific thing was where it could be. Because there's just some things you've got to die daily to every day. One of the things I do love about AA is they say, man, we take it day by day. 
today I'm not going to do this. Every day you're going to have to get up and fight the battle of hating yourself. There will never be a time in your life you snap it and you're over it. Because self-loathing is a great ploy of Satan. He sees a roaring lion walking around who can, seeing who can devour. He, he's the father of lies and he loves to plant lies in your head about yourself. Because here's the thing, lies about other people can be proven wrong. Lies about ourselves, we never convince ourselves they're wrong. Normally I write lots of notes in my Bible. I didn't write any notes under these points. We're just going to freestyle it today. Because as I was trying to write them out, I just couldn't get the right words, and I might not get the right words when I preach it. But I know the points are solid and the verses are solid. So the first thing we're going to do in learning to love ourselves is we're going to thank God for making you you unique. You're going to thank God for making you unique. You hate yourself because you're not like so-and-so. And God looks at you and says, I didn't create you to be like so-and-so. I created you to be the first you. I didn't need another them or another them or another them. I've got them where they need to be. Here's what you need to understand today. Of everybody who has ever lived in the history of the world, there's nobody like you. There is no one like you. Our God does not make mistakes. He does not make screw-ups. He does not have whoops. He made you, and he formed you, and he created you just the way you are. And when you dog on the masterpiece, you insult the creator. The Bible says this in Psalms 139. I praise you. Oh, BTW, this is by David. The Bible says he's a man after God's own heart. He was also a guy who committed adultery. He was also a guy who had a guy murdered. He was also a guy who walked away from God over and over and over. He was also a, God who, a guy who um, had four kids who went in total rebellion against him and tried to kill him, and they all ended up dead. He was also a guy who his purpose in life was to build the temple, and he never even got to build the temple. So he wasn't exactly the best guy in the world, but the Bible says he was a man after God's own heart in the middle of his sin, in the middle of his failure, in the middle of his screw-ups, in the middle of him looking in the mirror and saying, man, I am so much less than what God intended for me to be. He said, I pray praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made your works are wonderful I know that full well you are exactly who God created you to be the combination that you have in your life nobody else has there's nobody that has the physical combination you have there might be people who are doppelgangers and they look kind of like you but they don't have everything that you have and even if they look almost identical to you, they haven't been through the experiences that you've been through. They haven't been through the wins that you've been through, and they haven't been through the hurts that you've been through, and they don't have the makeup that you had. They don't have the DNA that you have. There's nobody else in the world who is Gary Lamb. Nobody. And a lot of people say, well, thank God. <laughs> That's cool. I get it. But here's the deal. Nobody. There's nobody, someone asked me today, they said, what are you doing letting your hair grow? I said, letting my hair grow out. They said, man, it's awful curly. I said, it's the black in me. They said, the black in you? I said, well, my middle name's Lamar. Gary Lamar Lamb Jr. There's some black back in the way, and it comes out through the head. And here's the deal. There's no other Gary that's got a little black in him where the curly hair comes out. That's also got a little bit belly who's too big, who's been through so much that I've been through and has done what I've done, has the experience that, and the hurts that I have, and the habits that I have, and the hangups that I have, and the wins that I have, and the celebrations that I have, and all those things. Make me who I am today. And there's nobody else like you. 
There's nobody who's been through the exact things that you've been through, been married to the people you've been married to, has the kids that you have, has the hurts that you have, and everything that you've been through in life was molding you and shaping you for God to fulfill his purpose in your life. You look at it as a mess, and God said, I was preparing you for your greatest ministry. Every single one of you have the ability to impact people that I'll never be able to impact because you're unique. All those past failures, God said, I was molding you. All those past wins, God said, I was molding you. All those insecurities, God said, I was getting you ready to deal with someone else who had the same insecurities. I was waiting for you to get victory where you could help them get victory. But we hate ourselves. Now, let me clarify some things. That doesn't mean that we accept ourselves just like we are and we don't ever try to get better. It's like my daughter. You ought to be able to look yourself in the mirror and know, man, I'm putting in the work. We ought to always be striving but here's the deal. If you're five foot four, you're never going to look like someone who's six foot one. Amen. If you've never been through some of the hurts that someone else has been through, you're never going to be able to relate to it. But they're never going to be able to relate to you. You've got to thank God for making you unique. You're the greatest you. That sounds so cheesy and so cliche and just so not me, but it's so true. You're the greatest you that there ever could be. And here's the problem. We feel this way about ourselves, and then we pass it down to our kids, and we wonder why they feel the way they feel. My oldest son is into a lot of things that me growing up I was never into. I don't want to say what it is because I don't want to sound like I'm making fun of those things. I'm not. But it's an adjustment for me that it was not the way I did things growing up. I was in this tribe, and he's in this tribe. And I go pick him up last night, because I'm dad taxi, bam, and I get him at midnight, and he gets in the car, and they had a competition for the thing he's into, and they won first place in the state, and he had his little thing. And I ain't going to lie to you. My first instinct was, that ain't a sport, what'd you win an award for? I'm not that stupid to say that. So I caught myself at 42. I'm still learning. And I said, man, that is awesome. And then I made the fatal mistake. Christine, she'll say amen to this. I said, tell me all about it. And the whole way home, I heard he might as well have been speaking German. I didn't have a clue what he was saying. But I said, man, that's awesome. That's incredible. That sounds so cool. Oh, you did what? Oh, man, that's rough. Oh, you thought, man, you didn't mess up. You came in first place. That's incredible. And I'm just pouring into him. Because here's the deal. I don't need him to be me. Matter of fact, I want him to avoid all the things that I did in my life that screwed up. I want him to be better than I ever thought about being. And that's the problem with some of you and your relationship with your kids. You're trying to turn them into you instead of letting them be them. I, I, had the, I typically I had the greatest dad in the world. My dad was so awesome. He let me do whatever I wanted to do. I mean, never, my dad was an amazing athlete. Got drafted for baseball. and was just an incredible star quarterback. It was high school team. was so into sports. And I never got into sports until I was in high school. And never once I remember my dad coming along and saying, man, you ought to play sports or you ought to do this. I did all the things that I wanted to do. And anything I wanted to do, he was all 
in, never tried to make me him. And I learned early on, man, I'm pretty unique, and you're unique, and you need to thank God for making you unique. You need to thank God for making the person in your life unique. You know, it took me, and I didn't even mean to go here to problem with no notes. It took me five years to appreciate my wife's uniqueness because she's not your typical pastor's wife. She'll cut you. She'll cuss you out. She'll love you like nobody else. She'll slap the tar out of you. She's just her. And when we first got married, I tried to form her into what I thought a pastor's wife should be. And the funny thing is I had people that I thought met that and they drove me crazy in the past and never worked out instead of letting her be herself. And it's funny, I've learned over the last year and a half, two years to let her be herself and now she thrives in that role and she has more respect in this church than I ever have in this church and people love her and people appreciate her. Why? Because I learned to appreciate her uniqueness. You keep trying to turn your spouse into something they're not. Enjoy their uniqueness. Now, their uniqueness can't be sinful. So I've learned in my personality over the years that I, I can be very sinful in my personality. I'm ego-driven, and I'm a, I'm a communicator, and I'm the alpha when I walk into a room. And if I'm not careful, I can become sinful in those actions. So I've had to learn through lots of counseling. Maybe some of y'all should get into some counseling. might do you some good. I've had to learn that I can be me, and I can be unique without being sinful in my uniqueness. I was sinful in my uniqueness for a long, long time, and it led me nowhere. And oh, by the way, I still go to the counselor and I still struggle with it every single day. Every day you've got to thank God for your uniqueness. I go to this place and I work every day and there's all these Christian people there. And um, I'm Christian people. And um, I'm always there and they're always very weird with me. But my best friend runs the place and I love to work a co-working space. And um, I always dread it when it finally, hey, what do you do for a living? When I tell my pastor, I like to say, whoa. Weren't you just cussing some dude out on the phone? <laughs> yeah. Go pastor the people I pastor. You'd be cussing them out too. And it's funny. I started going there to open in October. The first about month and a half, I just felt really loser-esque. And then all of a sudden, I came to the realization that, man, those people are great, and I love them, and they're unique in their own way. But I'm unique in my own way, and I don't got to be like them. And, you know, I, I don't got to wear my skinny jeans and my darkroom glasses and my shirt that's too small that they're wearing. And I don't need to peg leg my pants like the people did in the 80s with my hiking boots, even though I don't go hiking. And I'm not judging those guys. They just all look the same. You know what I mean? And I show up, and I just always have, like, sweatpants on because I'm fat and they're comfortable. And um, I've just learned I, I can be me. And they can be them. And I was very judgmental of them just now, wasn't I? See, that's where I'm wrong. See, that's my insecurity comes out, see? See, even when I'm preaching, it comes out. See how easy it is? I can't appreciate my uniqueness. I got a bastard uniqueness. Well, you're getting the raw deal today. We got to learn how to love ourselves. Hey, you know something else? We're going to know our worth. We're going to know our worth. Nobody sets your worth like you do. When I was 16 years old, I worked at Dairy Queen, first job I ever had. I was really into baseball cards and comic books. I was that kid. And I went to my dad and said, you know, it'd be cool if we owned a baseball card shop. And when I graduate, I'm going to start a baseball card shop and a comic book store. And he said, well, why are we going to wait till you graduate? Let's go do it now. Oh, really? And so I was 16 years old, I owned a baseball card shop and a comic book store. Here's the thing with baseball cards and comic book stores. Everything that you're selling is based on the value 
And so you have value guides on how much stuff is worth. But here's the deal. Those value guides are worthless if no one's willing to pay what it's worth. At the end of the day, something is only worth what someone's willing to pay for it. I remember getting a comic book one time and the book said it was worth $1,700. In my world, that was a lot of money 20 years ago. $1,700 for a comic book? That's incredible. And I had it graded and it was worth $1,700. I was like, man, I'm going to sell this book for $1,700. And I had $3 in it because I bought a bunch of comic books from a grocery, a grocery store from a garage sale and this comic book was in there. And over the next year, I probably had 200 people come look at that comic book. And no one remotely came close to offering $1,700 for it. But I remember sometime, one time someone offered $1,200 for it, and I laughed at him, or $1,700. And then I remember sometime, one time someone came in and offered $1,000 for it, and I laughed at him. And then I remember someone came in and offered $900 for it, and I laughed at him, and I said, it's for $1,700. And it was all said and done, money got real, real tight, and I had to make some tough decisions, and I sold that comic book that I got offered $1,200 for, I sold it for $300. Wow. You know why? Because that's what it was worth to the person buying it. You gotta know your worth. Now let me show you how much you're worth today. That the God of the universe, the creator of everything, the one who spoke everything into existence, the Alpha and Omega, the one who created yourself that you bash all the time, this is how much he loved you. The Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave. He gave what he was willing to to pay for your worth. He looked at us in our sin and said, they need perfection. Someone's got to pay the price for their sin. What am I willing to give for that? And he gave his one and only son that whoever leads him should not perish by every time. You're worth so much to God that he gave his son for you. It's one and only. I have four kids. Let me say this as much as I can. I love everybody here. I love my wife. But if somebody came in here with a gun and said, your son or them, your oldest son or them, I got two of them. I don't look at me like I got two. <laughs> got to go. My youngest son, my oldest daughter. My oldest daughter is 17 and doesn't even talk to me right now because, you know, she's 17 and doesn't talk to me right now. Or my youngest daughter, who's biologically not even mine, though she's mine. Everybody here, I hate it for you. You're taking a bullet before they do. I couldn't do it. I love you. And I feel like I'd move heaven and earth for you. And I think you're amazing. But for me personally, I, I, I know, man, it's not, I, ugh, I'm just, I, I, it feels weird to even say it. But you're not worth what my children are to me. Now, my wife is, but I would justify it in my head and be like, she'd kill me if I allowed one of them to happen. And then we just got life insurance policies. You know, so I'd be able to take good care of the kids. Like, she literally told me, I kid you not, this is what she told me last night. You'd probably be happy if I said, no, I don't care about the money. This is what, she said, it's a lot of money. You know what that told me? That the money is more to her than I am. 
I ain't sure that she ain't praying now. God, I love him. He's a good man. Car wrecks. That's a lot of money. It is a lot of money. Like, I am way worth more dead than I am alive. And I think, like, it got me a little bit worried. Like, I didn't go to sleep last night until I knew she was in a deep sleep. Because I didn't want to go to sleep first and her be like, pillow over the head. I don't know what he was having allergies and just couldn't breathe. And all of a sudden, he made a weird sound. He was dead. Where do I cash in that life insurance? You're worth so much that the creator of the universe, the God who could literally speak anybody else into existence if you were wiped off the face of the earth, loved you so much that he gave his son. Yet you look in the mirror and you hate yourself. And God says, but I loved you. You hate you, but I loved you. We take the words of our parents and the words of our spouses when they're angry and the words of our kids when they tell us they hate us or the words of people who don't like us. All these people that in the grand scheme of things are just people, yet the creator of the universe looks at us and says, I loved you so much. You're worth so much that I gave my only son for you. The value of something is what someone's willing to pay for it. And God paid his son for us just need that reminder every day I, I think it's one of those things that we've heard so much that we take it for granted so we're going to thank God for making us unique we're going to know our worth we're going to focus on the positive you negative people everything can go right in your life and you focus on the negative. Guilty of that too. I love this verse in Philippians. Paul's in prison. He knows his execution's coming. He knows he's at the end of the rope. He's frustrated. He's discouraged. If there was ever a reason to be negative, Paul had a reason to be negative. And he gives one of the most powerful verses ever. And he shows this in the process of doing it. Positivity is a choice. You don't got to like that. I'm not, I got to be real careful here. Now, I want to be careful because I care. I get people suffer from depression and anxiety. I mean, I'm the anxiety king. I get it. I get it. I get that there's, there's imbalances. I don't want to remotely come across like I'm, mocking that and saying you can just get over it but at the end of the day the word of God is the word of God and I believe you can do some things in your life to focus on the positive things instead of the negative things and over time it will change your outlook but you've got to make the conscious decision to do those things finally brothers and sisters look what he says whatever is true whatever is noble Whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is it admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. 
You can list a hundred things you hate about your spouse, or you can choose to focus on the one thing you love about them. And you can think about that one thing, and I guarantee you that as your demeanor changes towards them with that one positive thing, all of a sudden there's going to be two positive things, and there's going to be three positive things. You can go to work every day, and you can list all the things you hate about your job that disgust you about your job. You can feed off the negativity of everybody else in that room. You can listen to the bullshit music out there that is nothing but, ne- I'm sorry, it's nothing but negative, condescending down, how crappy my life. I was listening to some music that day. I love old outlaw country music. And I'm listening to the day, and then all of a sudden I feel like I'm in a funk. And I'm like, why am I in a funk? Oh, the last five songs, the dude's talking about slitting his wrist, talking about snorting cocaine, how his wife's left him, how his dog's done, his truck won't work. It's the most depressing music ever, and I put it in my body all the time. And I wonder why my outlook on life is negative, because I've allowed everything that comes through my filter to be negative. Or you can focus on the positive things. It really is a choice. You can list all the things that drive you crazy about your kids and good God Almighty, I get it, there's 10,982 things, especially if they're a teenager. Or you can think about those few moments when the stars align. And it was bliss. We're going to think about the positive things. We have so Many amazing things in our life. You're going to get off the phone whining and crying to everybody you know about all that's wrong in your life. Oh, by the way, you're going to quit listening to them whine and cry because all that does is bring you down. Paul says, put that verse back up, please, Xander. Whatever is good in your life, whatever, whatever, if there's anything praiseworthy, man, my marriage sucks, my marriage is horrible, my marriage is on the rocks, but man, we had this moment today. Focus on that moment. And that moment will become two moments, and those two moments will become 30 moments, and those 30 moments becomes one hour, and that one hour becomes five hours, then it becomes a day. Or we can focus on the negative. Focus on that hand grab when they ain't touched you in over three months because you're in such a bad place in your marriage. Think about that time, that work, and everything was good, and the boss said, man, you're doing a good job. And I know 500 times they told you you're doing a horrible job. Positivity is a mindset. I, I, I am convinced. I've been on this kick lately. Christine knows. I, and I don't even know where to begin in my study of it. But, like, this thing up here is amazing. We don't even understand the pain. I'm not trying to be some self-help, positive-thinking guru, but the Bible's full of it. As a man thinketh, so he is. This thing up here is powerful. And if we pour truth into it and we pour positivity into it, listen, the overflow of what comes out of you is what's poured into you. You can take a bucket and fill it up with water till it overflows, and no matter how much water you pour in that bucket, and no matter how much it overflows, Sweet tea is never coming out of that bucket. You put water in it, water's coming out. You can put positivity in your life. Man, we just don't get it. I love this other verse. Paul's literally, and now he's, he's at, they've taken him from the jail. They've put him before the king. The king gives him his charges, and the king's fixing to kill him. The Bible says in the verses before this they had just beat the tar out of him. 
He's bloody and he's beaten. He's probably unrecognizable and they're holding him up. And he's standing before the king. And the king says, what do you got to say for yourself? And Paul said in Acts 26 too, I thank myself happy. I thank myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things which I am accused of by the Jews. He said, hey, I know you're fixing to kill me. Hey, I know no matter what I say, I'm going to be found guilty. Hey, I know I'm going to die for my faith, but I thank myself happy because at least I get to give an account. And you know why he was happy about giving an account? Because he knew by giving an account he was going to give the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ was dead, buried, resurrected from the grave for all men. So he was happy because he knew, hey, I'm about to die, but I get to preach Jesus one more time. I think myself happy. You choose to make yourself not happy. I had something thrown at me this week that put me in a funk one night. And I did really good. You know, like, I did good. And my wife did good. It was nothing between us. But normally, she sees me hurting and in pain. She tries to fix it. And when she tries to fix it, it makes it worse because I don't want to be fixed right now. I want to wallow in my self-pity. And she let me wallow in my self-pity. And I was crushed. I was heartbroken. And I went to bed. And I got up the next morning. I said, I can't have a whole day like I had last night. What happened, happened. But I'm going to focus on all the great things that are going on in my life. Did it take away the hurt and pain? No, it was still there. But I had a great next day, and a great next day, and a great next day. And for the first time ever, we didn't have knockdown war. Ain't it funny how we try to help each other and we end up fighting over it? Like, sometimes you just got to gotta not make it about you. Christine's upset today. Guess what? She ain't upset about me. I don't need to make it about me. And guess what? I can't fix it. So I'm going to let her be mad. And in a couple hours, she's going to get over it. Or I'm going to try to fix it. And we're going to fight for the next three days. And she wasn't even mad at me to begin with. Free advice for you men. Just let them be mad. Even if they're mad at you, let them be mad. They'll get over it. A lot quicker than if you try to fix it. Listen to me. We're going to focus on the positive. We are a blessed group of people here. I got to get done. We're going to continually grow as God reveals areas we need to grow in. I don't want you to leave here today thinking, man, I love myself and I don't have to improve. I don't have to grow. Anything healthy is growing. You can plant a seed in the ground, and if it's a healthy seed, it grows. We're going to grow in life. Maybe it is your physical stuff, and you want to get better, and you want to get healthier. In that. Grow in that area. Don't hate yourself in the process, but take the steps to grow. Maybe it's your business, and you want to grow it, and you want to get more focused, and you want to get more disciplined. I'm fixing to start this thing tomorrow. You're going to hear a lot about it because I like the accountability. It's just how I roll. And, and someone asked me last night, and I said, why are you going to do this thing? And I said, I'm just in a stage in life where I need a win. And they said, wait a minute, you're successful in this. And I said, yeah, but I just need a win right now. I need a self win. I need something of discipline, something that is going to be so hard for me to do. I need a win that's not going to in, 
not winning in my marriage or winning financially or winning. I just need a self-win. Now, here's the deal. I'm not hating myself. I'm trying not to hate myself. I'm just trying to grow as God reveals. So for me, God's revealed, hey, man, you probably need to get a little more disciplined. You need to be a little more focused. Hey, I've laid some big opportunities in front of you, and because you're so disciplined, uh, undisciplined, you're really not maximizing those like you should. And I feel like this thing, I heard it about a month ago, and it keeps coming back to my head and keeps coming back to my head and keeps coming back to my head. And so I'm finally, man, man, God, is this something you want me to do? And so I'm going to do it because I need the win. Now, here's the scary part. If I don't do it, I'm going to feel worse than ever because I've got to accomplish That's why I keep talking about it publicly because I want you all to just dog the hell out of me if I don't get it done. You know what I mean? And so we've got to continually be growing as God reveals errors when you're growing. The Bible says this in Philippians, be confident in this, that he who began a good work in you will can carry it out until the completion of the day of Christ Jesus. Be confident in this. God started a good work in you. God started growth in you. And there's times it might be two steps forward. Someone who says, it's just two steps forward, one step back. I was like, well, yeah. But two steps forward and one step back is still one step forward. Sometimes it's three steps forward, and then it's two steps back. And then sometimes it's three steps forward and four steps back, but then the next step's five steps, and you got a lot farther than you were ever to begin with. See, we look at the here and now, and we look at today. God says, I'm forming you. I began something in you. And you're going to have those moments you fall back into that nature, because whatever our nature is, maybe it's anger for you or depression for you or stress for you or ego for you. When he gets turned up, we automatically revert back to that. If we're not continually trying to grow. Here's the deal. We have got to learn how to love ourselves. Because here's the deal. We're amazing. What God created when he created us is amazing. The fact that this and this and this and all this goes together... And the fact that what I do today is because of all the screw-ups and the wins I've had in the past, the combinations, it's amazing. There's no coincidence. It was the potter molding you and shaping you for the creation he wanted you to be. And there's times you get broken. They say a broken bone when it heals is stronger than it was before. I don't know all the science behind that. Sometimes those broken, they come back together and they're stronger than ever. If, if the broken bone is healed properly, you're amazing and you're never going to be able to love people till you love yourself. And you're so worthy of love. Thank God for your uniqueness. Start to realize your worth is the most there could have been. God gave his son for you. Focus on the positive. I'm telling you, it's game changing. Put on positive music. Watch positive shows. Be around positive people. They're just my friend. Well, they're bringing you down. So I'm just telling you. I saw this today. It said, if you take your 10 closest friends and you remove the most negative one in that group from your life, and you replace them with a positive person, the impact on your life is, but they've been there forever. Maybe they have. We tend to act like people who've been there forever is always a good thing. 
If they've been there forever and they're unhealthy and they're making you, bringing you down, then who cares if they've been there forever? I don't get that. And we're going to grow. We need to always be growing, always striving. I hate to use the word better. We just need to always be growing, always need to be evolving. Who I am today is not who I was 10 years ago. Who I am today is not who I was five years ago when I married Christine. We're different people. We've evolved. In a marriage, you need to learn how to evolve together. 